you are able to, would you continue standing and turn in your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 and to Luke chapter 9. 1 Peter 2 and Luke chapter 9. So if you're really good at standing and holding your place, uh, we're going to read two texts this morning. And uh, I know it's a little bit different, might cause you to do a little bit more maneuvering, uh, but we'll begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read starting in verse 1, and then we'll skip over to Luke chapter 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, God's word says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Would you turn with me also to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We'll begin reading in verse 18. Here the Holy Spirit writes through Luke. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we come to you, God, we thank you that because Jesus lives, we can face tomorrow. We thank you that our hope is in Christ alone, this cornerstone, the, the center of our faith and this confession of who Christ is as the as the Christ of God. Lord, we thank you that we can have hope in the midst of whatever situations we find ourselves in in our life, in the midst of great joy and rejoicing, in the midst of great trials and suffering. Lord, we can have hope because Jesus is the Christ. Because he suffered and he died and he rose from the dead. Lord God, I ask now that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word. So that every heart might confess that Christ is Lord. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis once wrote, said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, 
or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was, either Jesus was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. This is often, uh, this quote here from C.S. Lewis has often uh, been reduced down to saying of Jesus, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. He's either lying about his identity as the Son of God, he, or he's absolutely crazy because of what he claims, or he's absolutely right in what he claims. I mean, friends, consider for a moment just a couple of the things that Jesus says about himself. In the Gospels, in John uh, chapter 10, verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. In other words, he's saying that eternal life comes from him. In Luke 18, verse 22, uh, the, the, Jesus says to the rich man, he says, One thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and your treasure will be in heaven, and come follow me. In other words, he's saying, I'm greater than all of your treasures. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In John 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In Mark 14, 61 and 62, Jesus uh, was asked, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Those are just a few of the, the a handful of the claims that Jesus makes about himself. And we could be, we could go on and look at all of the claims that he makes about himself. So Jesus, as Lewis says, he's either lying about his identity, he's just completely crazy, or he is our true Lord and Savior. You may be asking, well, what does this have to do with our series through First Peter? What does this have to do with First Peter chapter 2? Well, in First Peter chapter 2, we saw Peter talk about Jesus being the cornerstone. In other words, being the foundation, being the very center of our lives, being around, built around who he is and what he's done and what he has claimed about himself. And I want us to see, going back to Peter's confession here in Luke chapter 9, his confession here in Luke 9, also we'll look at Matthew 16, and we'll see that Jesus says that this confession is the rock upon which he will build his church. In other words, Peter's confession in Luke chapter 9 is at the heart of Christianity. That Jesus, in other words, is our cornerstone. What is this cornerstone? It's this claim that Christ makes that, that Peter makes about Christ here. So who is Jesus? We saw from 1 Peter chapter 2 that he is our cornerstone. But who does Peter say about, who, who does Peter say Jesus is here? You know, friends, what you think about Christ, what you believe about him, makes all the difference in the world. What you believe about Jesus will affect your eternity. 
In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So Peter uh, and Paul there calls us to not just think about Jesus, not just to know facts about Jesus, but to confess and believe in him. In other words, it's not just a mere knowledge. Friends, you can know a lot of things about Jesus. You can have a lot of knowledge about him. But it not change the way you live. In all of my studies, I've been around a lot of students that are way smarter than me, that are way more knowledgeable than me, who are way more gifted than I am. But knowledge and gifting is not going to change your eternity. What we see Peter doing here in Luke 9 and what Paul called us to do in Romans chapter 10 is to confess and believe. If you confess and believe that that Christ is who he says he is, then it will absolutely change who you are. Confessing and believing will change you. It will save you. And, and he mentions that it is, Paul mentioned that it is with the heart that one believes and is justified. What is the heart? How does the Bible use the heart imagery throughout the scriptures? Well, in other words, it's the center of who you are. Similar to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, the cornerstone, the center to who we are, the center that we build our lives around. So if we say that Jesus is the Christ, if you truly believe him to be the Christ, the son of God, it will change. you. And in Luke nine. We see that it also changes the way we live, how we are to die to ourselves and pick up our cross daily and follow after Jesus. So, friends, brothers, and sisters, I ask you, is Christ at the center of your life? Is he your cornerstone? Has your confession and your belief in him changed you? Many of you know that I love the Lord of the Rings and I love the Hobbit. There's a scene in the Hobbit where Gandalf is trying to convince the main character, Bilbo, to go off on a journey with him. But Bilbo loves comfort. And he asks Gandalf, he says, can you promise that I will come back? Gandalf says, no. And I promise that if you do, you will not be the same. And that's similar to what we do when we confess Jesus as the Christ, as our Savior and our Lord. We are changed. We will not. You will not be the same. Because saying Jesus is the Christ is no small statement. So who is Jesus? Well, let's examine what Peter says about him in Luke chapter 9. Let's examine, is he a liar? Is he a poached egg? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? Jesus asked his disciples there in Luke 9, verse 18, he said, he says, who do the crowds say that I am? So we have Jesus ask this question, and we see these various answers. 
how do they how do the disciples respond? They answer by saying, well, the, the, the crowd say that you're John the Baptist in verse 19. Some say Elijah and others say one of the prophets of old has risen. They basically restate what was being said about Jesus from verses seven and eight earlier in chapter nine. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there. You see that? He doesn't just say, well, who do people say that I am? No, he asks this pointed question. He asks the question in verse 20. He says, but who do you say that I am? And he asks it in the plural. He says, who do y'all say that I am, in other words? And, and, and who does who, who answers? Peter, right? Peter answers and he says, you are the Christ of God. And if you turn actually to Matthew 16, you'll see that Matthew actually uh, expands a little bit more on this section. In Matthew 16, verse 16, uh, he gives Peter's full answer there, where he says, "You, uh, you." Matthew 16, verse 16, Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and how does Jesus reply to Peter's answer? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we see that this question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am, has an objective answer, an objectively true answer, meaning there is a true way to answer this question, and there is a wrong way to answer this question. There's no subjective answer to who Jesus is. And now, there are many today who hold to that view. that They say that something may be true for you, but not true for me. You go to various universities, and that's what's taught in various uh, 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 philosophy classes, philosophy of religious classes, that religious teaching is subjective, meaning that it's not objective, meaning that it's not real. It's not true. It's just a personal belief. It can be true for you, but not for others. But friends, that way of thinking is absurd. How can something be true, but not true? The, the truth of Christianity, the truth of who Jesus is, is not simply personal taste. A personal taste for truth, it is truth. As I mentioned, there are various people who think that way. Who think in regards to Christianity, there can be all kinds of truth. And that's taught in even uh, many so-called Christians. Christian schools, that there is a realm of religious truths, that it's subjective, it's relative to who you are, it's relative to culture, to, to time and its place in history. It's not facts, it's just a feeling, it's just personal taste and it's just emotions. And then there's those who, uh, then there's those who think that there are just the hard facts in regards to the realm of science in different universities. But you need to be careful because what claims to be science today is not often often objective science either. It's scientism. And it functions like a belief as well. So there are many today who say, okay, religious beliefs, it's all relative. It's, it's all personal taste. If it works for you, good. But it doesn't work for me. 
but but I believe in hard science. And, and, and science is an incredibly helpful tool, absolutely. But you need to be careful when people put the distinction, they pit science against the Bible, they pit science against Christianity. So be ready for that, prepare for that, so that you won't be sideswiped and that you can give definite answers to questions that cannot be answered subjectively. So we see that in the biblical worldview, there is actually no way for Jesus to be the Savior, the Christ of God. There's no way for him to be the Savior, but not be the Savior. See that? There's no realm of possibilities. He either is or he isn't. So those who say, well, I think Jesus is a good religious teacher. I like a lot of his teachings. I I like the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't like the other parts of the Bible. You can't say that he's a good religious teacher based off of what he has said about himself. He's either a lying, a crazed liar, he's a crazed lunatic, or he is Lord. The Bible and Jesus both make objective and truthful claims that he is the Savior, who alone can save us from our sins. There's no other way to answer it, brothers and sisters. He either is or he is not. And and you saw how Jesus responded to to Peter in Matthew 16, didn't you? He said, did he did he say to Peter, well, Peter, that's that's nice of you to think that way, Peter. But what about you other disciples? He doesn't say, "Okay, Peter, that's true for you. But what about the rest? No, he says, Peter, you are blessed and God has revealed this to you. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God. But what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Remember that Christ, it's not his last name, right? You know, he wasn't called Mr. Christ. No, it's a title. It's a title that comes from the Old Testament, uh, meaning anointed one. See, the word Christ here in English is a form of a Greek word, Christos, which comes from a Hebrew word for the Messiah, meaning anointed one. Okay, that's great. But what's the importance of the anointed? Well, all throughout the Old Testament, kings were anointed with oil at their coronation. But this word used here speaks of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who would one day come and set all things right and deliver people from captivity to sin. And and Peter is saying that Jesus, being the Christ of God, is the fulfillment of these promises. When, When Peter says that he is the Christ of God, he's saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah who was sent by God. Now, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Adam and Eve had sinned, we saw this in, in Sunday school last week, right? When we looked at Adam and Eve's sin, we saw that in Genesis 3.15, God had promised that he would one day send a deliverer. And so the promise, uh, the hint of the gospel was clearly seen all the way back there in Genesis chapter 3. The promised deliverer was promised all the way back there. And so what Peter is saying is that the hope of the Old Testament is found in the fulfillment of that promise. That one day God would send a deliverer and this Messiah is here. He is Jesus. This Christ has come. So Peter is saying, you are the one that God promised. 
And it's clear that, that Peter's actually saying a lot more than he knows at the moment. Especially after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter truly begins to understand the depth of what he has confessed here in Luke chapter 9. So we see the question. The question is, who do you say that I am? Friends, how would you answer that? How do you answer that about Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter answered, see the answer is that he is the Christ of God. So we've seen the question, we've seen the answers of the crowds, we've seen the question, and we've seen the answer. But now we're going to look at the king's promise. Verse 21, Jesus goes on, he strictly charged and commanded them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and be killed and on the third day be raised. So immediately after this confession by Peter, Jesus responds in an interesting way, doesn't he? He says, well, uh, he charged them not to tell. Why would he do this? Why would he charge them not to tell anyone? Isn't he Savior? Shouldn't they know? Why is it in some places in, in the Gospels, Jesus tells them to go and tell? Why is it in some places he tells them to keep it quiet? Why sometimes they can tell and others they don't? Well, the answer is ultimately found in what he says he must do as the Messiah. He says he must suffer and die on the cross. So before his greatness is made known through his resurrection, he must suffer and die. So Peter and the other disciples didn't realize all that he was saying. The Messiah in their day, they viewed as a political leader who would rise up and deliver them from Roman oppression. They were expecting a physical or a political uh, 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 rescue. But God's intention was much different and far greater than a political rescue. The kingdom of Christ was not about building up a political and military following, as many in his day viewed the Messiah. He didn't want the wrong sort of buzz to come about over his ministry. He didn't want people following him for the wrong reasons. He didn't want his Messiahship to be misunderstood. Instead, he wanted his works and the scriptures to testify to who he was, and that included his death, and his resurrection. So friends, I want to ask you, are you following Jesus for the wrong reasons? Many people follow Jesus simply because they think he's fire insurance. But Jesus is not simply fire insurance. Jesus is not, if, if Jesus is who he says he is, that he's not simply your homeboy or some sidekick or some old man in the sky, he is king and we see what the king must do in verses 21 and 22 he talks about how the king must suffer and die we see that jesus uses that title there you see the son of man must suffer this is another messianic title that comes from daniel 7 which speaks of a divine figure coming to make everything right but notice jesus says the son of man must it says must, must suffer and die. 
Friends, when Jesus went to that cross, it was not something that caught him off guard. This was planned before the foundations of the world that he must suffer and die. And the Jews had no concept of a suffering Messiah. It really didn't make any sense to them. How can you be saved through suffering? How would the Messiah, how how would he defeat sin through suffering and dying? How could he do that by dying? Which is why in Mark and in Matthew, when, when, when Jesus says this, what does Peter do? He rebukes Jesus, right? By Jesus saying that he must suffer and die. Showing us that he had planned to die. He was doing this voluntarily. Friends, Jesus voluntarily gave his life and he was rejected and killed for your sins. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So why did Jesus have to die? Because our sin entails a penalty. The wages of sin is death. And for us to be forgiven, it entails suffering. Friends, think of this in your own life. When somebody does something wrong against you, and you offer them forgiveness, forgiveness always entails a sort of suffering. You're wronged, you forgive them. It means in a way that you sort of suffer. You don't get even. When we forgive, we suffer in a way. And that's what's happening with Jesus' forgiveness. He suffers. God suffers for us. And so Jesus mentioned that he's going to suffer and be rejected by the leaders. He's going to be killed. So Jesus had to die. And his death shows us the injustice of the world. The elders, the priests, the Roman leaders, the Roman rulers, they should have stood for justice, but they didn't. Instead, they preferred injustice. And what we see there is that, friends, that the governments of the world, that the justice system is not the answer to solve the world's problems. Yes, good governments are meant to restrain evil, but they cannot defeat evil. They can't defeat sin and death. This world and its systems are not the final answer. We need to have the penalty for our sins taken away. We need to be forgiven and forgiveness entails suffering. So what Jesus is saying here is either you have to pay the penalty for your sin in hell for eternity or I will pay it for you. Now maybe you, you you, you wonder, well why couldn't Jesus just die of natural causes? Why couldn't he just die of old age? Well as the writer of Hebrews says in 9 verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There is no forgiveness of sin. The term blood in Scripture means a life that was given or taken before its natural end. And, and that was the point of the sacrificial system that you see all throughout the Old Testament. They couldn't just raise sheep and goats and bulls and just let them die of old age. No, they had to die as a substitute. Only Jesus, by laying down his life 
in receiving the suffering and the punishment for our sins could pay the punishment for our sins. And you know, that's what we're about to be reminded of as we take the Lord's Supper in a couple of minutes. The suffering and the punishment that Jesus went through on our behalf. But friends, that's not the end. Christ's salvation doesn't end in death. And said what? He says that he must rise as well on the third day, just like he predicted, showing that the sacrifice was accepted by God, showing that sin and death has been defeated. He has been raised. As we're about to sing at the end of service, how do we know we've been forgiven? How do we know that we've been made clean? How do we know we'll go to heaven? How do we know we've been redeemed? The answer, you have been raised. The tomb has been has been opened. Nothing can take away our hope in you. You have been raised. The work is completed. Hell and its powers have been defeated. You have been raised. Friends, because Jesus' death and resurrection, through Jesus' death and resurrection, death, has been defeated. And we understand that even though death is the worst thing that can happen to you in this life, through Christ, through faith in Him, confessing Him as your Savior and your Lord, making Him the cornerstone, the center of your life, through Christ, death actually becomes the best thing because that is how we enter into glory. Hell and its powers have been defeated. So what we see here, friends, is you can't stay on the fence about Jesus. Choose whom this day you will serve. Friends, do you not see the beauty of the King who goes to the cross for you? And if you truly behold His beauty, you will be changed. You will never be the same. And so the question is poised to us today. The question is poised to you today. Who do you say that I am? That's the question that we are called to ask, to ask ourselves, to answer ourselves. And that's the question we're called to ask others. Some have been satisfied to say that Jesus was a good moral teacher. Some have been satisfied to say that he is a prophet. That's what Islam teaches. But if Jesus were a prophet, his words must be true. Because prophets speak truly for God. And Jesus claimed to be God. Claimed to die for our sins. And claimed to rise from the dead. So friends, if you reject that. If you reject that Jesus is, is the Savior, is your Savior. Then he's not a good teacher. Then he's not a good prophet. Because that's clearly what he taught. C.S. Lewis goes on to expand of his previous quote, he says, you can shut Jesus up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a liar? Is he some crazed lunatic? Or is he your Lord and Savior? Friends, the answer to that question is why we exist as a church. Uh, on the front of our bulletins, we see 
that it says Christ, community, commission, right? The, the answer to that question, answering who Jesus is as the Christ, is at the center of who we are. That is why we exist as a church. That's why we are committed to Christ here. That's also why we work together with other churches in our association and in our, in our convention of churches to take the gospel of the Christ of God to where it has never been preached before, where people have never heard of the name of Jesus Christ, to ask them the question, to teach them who Jesus is and to ask them, who do you say that Jesus is? So friends, that's why we are called to be his witnesses here in this community. So who can you ask that question of this week? After you've answered that question for yourself, who can you ask this question this week? Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, and Lord, we thank you that your word is clear. Your word is clear in teaching us about who Jesus is. That he's not simply a good teacher. He's not simply a prophet. but he is your Messiah whom you sent to suffer in our place, to die for our sins, and to be raised, showing that our salvation has been accomplished, to show that hell and its powers have been defeated. Father, if there are any here this morning who have not trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they would do so at this very moment, that they would be able to answer the question of who do you say that I am, that they would be able to answer that definitely, that they would confess and that they would believe that Jesus Christ was buried and he was raised for their sins. Lord, for those who are currently trusting in Jesus, Help us to persevere. Help us to press on. Help us to be witnesses. Lord, we ask for opportunities this week to share the good news of who Christ is and how we can have hope in the midst of a broken and sin-cursed world. Father, we thank you and praise you that you didn't leave us in our brokenness, that you did not leave us in our sin. You allowed a way for us to be brought back into right and meaningful relationship with you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.